Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place for advisors to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is a longtime friend and someone who has quite a unique perspective within the industry, Gerald Graves. And I say unique, as we'll get into, as Gerald has seen the industry from so many different angles, we thought it's important to share his perspective. Gerald is currently the co-managing partner at Filigree Advisors, an independent RIA located in various areas of the West Coast, managing clients nationwide. Gerald, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Give us a little history on your journey into and through financial services. The start you and and I had so long ago is very contextual for perspective on the evolution of investors and advisors. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's. I think you and I were both, you know, really fortunate to uh, start our journey uh, into the financial services world. You know, really, when the tech boom was just starting up, so this was like the first sort of like home computer tech boom. Uh, I graduated from University of Oregon. You graduated from University of Michigan, and uh, those were like right in the mid '80s. And you know, I think we were fortunate that as fate would have it, we both ended up in San Francisco, where it was kind of ground zero for uh, a lot of what was going on in the tech revolution. Uh, I started. Uh, right out uh, working at Charles Schwab. And in fact, I think the job I started with, I was a margin clerk in the margin department. <laughs> and back then, you would actually hand calculate margin calls for people. So you'd get a list of accounts and crank through it with a calculator and figure out who owed money that day. And obviously, that job was replaced by computers many years ago, but uh, you're, um, skipping, you're skipping over a little Drexel Burnham in there before you get yeah. to Schwab, but we'll, we'll let that pass. Yeah, no, 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 no. I've, it's, it's actually, uh, I actually started at Schwab there and then I've got Drexel coming. I, you, ah, you missed, uh, I missed, uh, you missed one of my jumps. Um, but, uh, uh, but, and then before, and then before that, um, uh, and then it, after that, that is when I went to Drexel Burnham. And at Drexel Burnham, you know, it was kind of interesting because that was sort of the, you know, Mike Milken, uh, you know, junk bond king kind of a thing. But it was also at the time, I believe, the largest investment banking firm in the country. Um, and it was a really great, amazing experience. Um, but unfortunately, the investment banking group, um, you know, was doing things uh you know, illegally. And at one point, um, you know, got into a lot of trouble. Uh, and it was, it was really kind of an interesting life lesson in that, you know, and I think it, it has a lot to do today with maybe some of the things that are going on in the crypto space, but, you know, no matter who you are as an individual and what you do. And, and at the time, just before the problems with Drexel Burnham, I remember they, they put an ad in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and I think it had 10,000 employees. So out of 10,000 employees, all doing the right thing, you know, there was a small fraction that was not doing the right thing. And it ended up basically, you know, destroying that company. Um, but, I, it, you know, I think it made me realize, you know, 
when you're when you're young and especially building a career, it's important to um, think about who you're working for uh, and you know what you're doing because you can be doing all the right things, but we be working at a place that you know maybe isn't the right place for you. So for me, when Drexel started getting into trouble, that's when I said, you know what, where's the one place I can go where I feel completely comfortable about the ethical nature of the company, the reputation, you know, what they're doing. And for me, I was like, well, the one place I feel most secure about that is Schwab. So that's when I went back to Schwab. Um, and in fact, um, you know, and, and in fact, I think at that point, I went into a group uh, which actually started selling uh, something called the Equalizer, which was uh, pretty crazy because uh, the Schwab Equalizer was a floppy disk that you would use in a home computer uh, with a dial-up modem, um, and you could actually trade trade stocks online like the pros kind of a thing. And the funny part about it was at the time, hardly anybody had home computers. So, so many of the time uh, when I was on a, on a call talking with, with an investor or a client at Schwab, they'd say, yeah, how do I trade from home? And you start talking to them and they'd, well, I don't have a home computer. And, and what's a modem? And so it was, it was kind of a, a funny experience. I think in folklore, we were called, there was five of us, the five wise guys. Uh, uh, and one of those guys was, uh, was Jim Hackley, which then went on to kind of run Schwab uh, Institutional Financial Advisor Service at the time. But, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was just an interesting time because technology was just seeping into the brokerage industry. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a very different time. Uh, and the way people did their jobs uh, was very different. And sort of from then, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time at Schwab. That's, you know, we, I, we then went into Schwab Institutional. That's where we met. Uh, I think I spent a little over a decade there. You and I then then left to a startup uh, firm, which, you know, sort of ended up, you know, becoming what, you know, I'm at today, which is Filigree Wealth Advisors. Um, but through that time, you know, I spent time at a large, large brokerage firm, investment banking firm, mutual fund family, uh, a company associated with a trust company and a private bank. So I feel like I've seen just about everything, you know, out there in terms of uh, kind of corporate history, in terms of what's going on in the industry. And, you know, to this day, I still feel very strongly the best, the best sort of structure out there to serve individuals is the independent RIA, which is why I'm still doing it. And you forgot the um, company that does insurance as well that we were at. Yeah, M Financial, which uh, was located in Portland as well. So, yeah. uh, so dating us some more, there was a world in financial services, traders, investors actually thrived pre-internet, not a lot of technology. So thinking back, who dominated that world? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting you sort of threw in there both... Uh, uh, I think it was investors and 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 firms. It's like I'm not sure investors thrived as much as sort of the brokerage firms thrived back then. You know, pre pre internet, a lot of these companies were you know these big household behemoths like Merrill Lynch, uh, Dean Witter, 
E.F. Hutton, Shearson Lehman, Bear Stearns. Um, you know, if you think about Dean. What I remember, they used to have offices or kiosks in all the Sears Sears uh, <laughs> department stores. It's like I mean, it's pretty crazy. But you know, you watch on TV, and every ad was for Merrill Lynch, who was bullish on America. Or when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. I mean, it. But the, the interesting part about the world back then was. Um, it, it was very sort of proprietary uh, and closed. Uh, and I think, you know, that's kind of a, a big thing. Um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't just have, there, there wasn't a research guy that spoke about the stocks they wanted on CNBC and you could just go somewhere and buy them. If you, if you wanted to find out what the top research analyst for a firm thought about Apple, you would actually have to, open up an account at that firm. Uh, and so you, a lot of larger investors would have accounts at all the different firms out there. Uh, and, and there was really sort of no sharing of idea or openness to that, that world at all. It was really difficult for, I think, clients to navigate. Um, and, you know, that was at the time too. And I think there was a old sort of saying, who owns the boats in the New York Harbor? And it's not the clients it's the brokers. And uh, I think it was, you know, there was a lot of um, just sort of closed, conflicted things going on, which weren't necessarily the best for investors. You could also sit in the Schwab lobby and watch the ticker go by. Yeah. Well, that was, that was, I think when the technology, you know, first started kind of coming in, that was like a, that was a big deal. Um, But, uh, you know, I think back then, the the real focus uh, was inward, and it was really all about closed architecture, proprietary products. My firm's better than your firm, so um, we're going to have our own things, and you're not going to be able to get them anywhere else, and they're going to be expensive, and then we're going to require our salespeople to go sell them. Uh, and so, you know, again, this is all pre-internet, but, you know, I think that's when the industry picked up the word sell side. So when you talk about a brokerage firm, you're talking about the sell side, it's because they're selling things, they're selling stuff to investors, um, cause they can't necessarily buy them on their own or go get them. They have to be kind of sold them. So, you know, in my mind, again, and this was right when we were kind of getting getting into it and figuring it out um but you know sort of moving into the 90s um you've got an industry that was really huge that was just ripe for disruption you know it's high fees closed architecture expensive products crappy technology and then all of a sudden you know the internet starts coming around and and technology is coming along and people are getting home computers and you know, I think I think it wasn't until the '90s when cell phones even came out. I think it was. I think that you, you might remember that better '90s, but I, I'm thinking that was '90s. It was. I can remember seeing Joe Montana walk down Geary Street with a cell phone, and I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> That's awesome. And was it like a as big as a shoe, or was it? it? It was the next gen, but he didn't have the shoe one, but he had a cell phone, and I was so envious. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so let's, let's get into a little bit of Schwab. You know, Schwab didn't invent the RIA, but the compliance department discovered a different way the investor was getting advice. And this was in 86. 
And then the technology revolution and the internet happened and a new industry was born. So that was a really interesting time. And then you found yourself in LA working with these advisors. And did the focus on the investors start to shift at that point? And what were the advisors like? Yeah. I mean, I think there's <clears throat> there's a lot, lot in that. Um, you know, I'd almost go back and, you know, maybe say let's spend a few minutes on Schwab, because I feel like they're really kind of an underappreciated trailblazer in a lot of this development. Um, but I think it was 1975 that SEC, you know, created something called May Day, which was brokerage firms could actually separate a, a commission, they could separate transaction fees in advice and sort of bifurcate them. Um, because previously, like you might go to uh, a place like Merrill Lynch and say, I want to buy some Apple shares. And it would be like $150 or $250. Who knows what it was? And what was interesting about that was they would say, well, that's for the research. That's for the advice. That's for my time. That's for all these things. And that's what it just costs. And so you know, it was really kind of, it freed things up. And sort of then it was sort of like enter Chuck Schwab, who kind of came in and said, you know, I have a vision and I'm going to create a company that separates transaction fees from advice, and we're just going to do transactions. And so that kind of started in 75, but I, you know, but Chuck really kind of got his game going in the early eighties. Um, and, you know, it was just, it was different because, investors could access Schwab directly. It wasn't, you had to kind of get brought in by an advisor. Um, and, and because of that, Schwab had to focus on technology. They had to focus on the client. Um, so it was different because now with technology, you know, back in the old days, all the smart people in the industry would either work at Merrill or Shearson or all those old firms, because that's the only place you really could work. But now all of a sudden, those smart people at those firms said, hey, you know what, with technology now, I can go out on my own, create my own firm uh, and start start doing things on my own. So it really kind of changed things up. Um, another th thing with Schwab, uh, I think it was 1985, they rolled out mutual fund marketplace. So, you know, we're talking about just sort of just brokerage firms, but mutual funds in general, they used to all have a belief that the you would you would put your money with them and you would put all your money with them. So you would they would have 17 different mutual funds and your portfolio would somehow consist of all 17 of those funds. And you know you couldn't have a fidelity fund and a, a Dodge and Cox fund and a Columbia fund. You had to have all at Columbia or all at Dodge and Cox because it was just too hard to deal with. Well Schwab came out and said we're going to create a marketplace of that. Uh, and and allow investors to have access. You open one account at Schwab, you get access to that. As simple and basic as that sounds, that was a big freaking deal. Um, another thing Schwab did was no fee IRA, um, where again at the time you would have uh, IRA IRA accounts at all these different firms, and they would all have an, a fee like 150 bucks to open the account, uh, annual maintenance fee. And then even worse yet, a closing fee, like if you close it, they actually charge you uh, to close the account. Um, and those things happened. Schwab came out and created um, a no-fee IRA, 
which again, huge deal, revolutionary. So between mutual fund marketplace, no FIIRA, those were things hugely uh, impactful with Schwab of uh, of bringing in assets. Um, uh, and we'll get to sort of the financial advisor part in a minute, but I think, you know, you and I know people like John McGonigal, uh, Jeff and Susie Lyons, Jim Hackley, John Coglin. Um, you know, these guys aren't necessarily well-known names out there, you know, I think across the country, but, you know, I think they really did a lot to kind of revolutionize the industry and, and impact investors in, in ways that I think a lot of people just, you know, have no idea. Completely agree. And there's, there's so many more that, um, we can just sit here and name names, but we won't. Yeah. But, um, so talk about the, the early advisors. Um, yeah. you were, you were trained for a couple of weeks and then you were sent down to LA and we called you easy money because we thought you're going to make a ton of money down there, but you, you ran into advisors who didn't know what Schwab was doing. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that name's kind of stuck around too. I don't know how, but, uh, it was, uh, that was, that was one of them. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was kind of funny. And when I started with Schwab, uh, one of the first things they gave me, and I'm sure you had one too, uh, and I've got, I've got my coffee mug with over 1 billion of client assets. And shockingly today, that's over 3 trillion with a T. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of nuts what's happened, but, Again, you know, I think with, uh, you know, with kind of that process, you know, Schwab and Schwab came up with that. You mentioned it about the compliance department. Uh, these these really smart people that used to work at all these other firms started to go independent and they found Schwab because Schwab, again, didn't have advice at the time. They had good technology and they had a very low transaction cost. So they created this perfect sort of place for these independent advisors to go. Um, the problem was Schwab kind of didn't even know that. And in fact, Schwab found out about this business by um, discovering on a compliance run that certain people had a whole lot of accounts with limited powers of attorney that had different last names. So usually that was just a, a parent and their kids that had, they had limited power of attorney on. And now all of a sudden there's somebody that's got hundreds of accounts all with different last names, red flag, what's going on here? Uh, and so that's kind of how they found this business. But from that, Schwab then started, and this is kind of right when you and I got there. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you have a better idea. What what were we on the employee tree at uh, Schwab Institutional? You were 31 and I was 32. Yeah. So, I mean, the first, you know, 30 employees of that group trying to figure this out. And it was kind of funny because we would literally just go around and talk to advisors and say like, you know, I noticed you're using Schwab. What, why, and and what would you like us to do? And they would say things like, well, it'd be great if you could, you know, suppress all the confirms or put all my monthly statements in one envelope. Um, again, before we had digital or electronic you know, statements or whatever, but it's like, I mean, kind of simple stuff, but, um, you know, or, I think or quit, quit sending my clients marketing materials for retail things. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think, and you, you bring up a good point because I think as this evolution came on, um, 
companies like Schwab and Fidelity, I think had an advantage over other firms because they had already developed like significant resources to work with investors. So, you know, Schwab kind of and Fidelity, they knew what investors wanted. Schwab came at it at a very different angle than Fidelity, but, you know, both had these really strong retail offerings. So investors didn't feel like, you know, kind of insecure or weird about putting money at a company that potentially they'd heard of. Uh, so you've got this advisor that's smaller, but then they've actually have the custody separated at these larger firms. And so, you know, I think that, you know, having having significant sort of retail enterprises really helped Schwab and Fidelity, you know, take off. Um, but I think they did so in very different ways. Fidelity was kind of more focused, you know, at the time on you know, their own mutual funds and their amazing 401k business. And how do you, how do you bring advisors into that? And Schwab was kind of more, Hey, we we're just open and we, you know, we'll try to do everything we can for those advisors, but it was really kind of a fun time because, you know, even the CFP business, everything was just kind of getting going. So, you know, there were advisors out there that only did mutual funds. There were advisors that only did equities. There were advisors that had balanced portfolios. There were financial planners. There were it was just lots of different types of people. So, you know, I think it was really fun to to just go around and kind of meet everybody and figure out what everybody was doing uh, and uh, where they were doing it at. The one thing I think that that I always thought was great with the industry was all these people, though, all they did was manage clients' assets. And all they did was think about the client and think about what's the best thing we can do for the client. Whereas the wirehouses, it was always more like, okay, we've got this, all these clients, you know, what, what can we do? You know, what products can we get them? It was more of a product thing. It was a revenue thing. And advisors were out there you know, in their own way, forming their own identity and connecting with clients and creating offerings, they would then come to a Schwab and say, hey, here's what we need to, to do this thing better. And then, you know, obviously Schwab was trying to create it, but you, you've got this sort of kind of perfect machine to start sucking assets out of wirehouses. And, you know, I think that was kind of how the, the whole industry got going. It seems like it was a long time, but it really wasn't that we went from green sheets at Shearson to fee only at Schwab. That yeah. happened quick, quicker than you think it did. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, and I you know again, and I think, you know, I sort of think technology, you know, really kind of drove that because again, before there was just no opportunity to compete against that world. And once, you know, kind of the internet and, and, technology came around and the, it, the smarter brains out there in the industry had the ability to go independent. All of a sudden, you know, there was this new model where investors could go directly to the kind of person they wanted who could then as an intermediary go to whatever they wanted to, to help their client out, whether it was a mutual fund, a bank or whatever they wanted to do. And you could do that. So again, that's that's why I think sort of this independent advisor is just it's it was the better model. Um, and and another thing that fed it, um, you know, brokers at these old warehouse firms they knew they were losing. 
right? So then what happened? Then we created this big wave, the breakaway broker, um, which is all these guys from wirehouses ended up leaving to start their own RIA. Um, and again, and so you've got these, you know, firms like Schwab that are just right, just completely lined up to, to catch that wave. So the, the wave, the boom came and it was not only Schwab doing this, Fidelity, Pershing, Jack White, which became TD, um, they all entered into the market to woo the independent financial advisor. Like you just said, reps and advice left wirehouses and droves for independence. So the war for custody of these assets was on. And But there was also an internal battle with all these companies for the end investor as well. So the investor's getting hit by all kinds of stuff. Now they're the focal point, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, hopefully it's always about the client. And I think the, the firm that, and, or the, the organizations that actually learn how to focus on the client best tend to win. Um, and, you know, again, I think, you know, and this is the example that you gave, if you're, if you're Schwab, um, again, you know, you, you're, you're trying to get, you know, independent investors. And in the case of, of, you know, Schwab, they, they, for a while had this real kind of easy model where it was like, if you're self-directed, you went to retail. Uh, if you were a delegator, we would try to hook you up with an advisor and, and there was nobody in the middle. Uh, and, and yeah, I remember when it was a big shocker, we, after a strategy session and all of a sudden, you know, I think somebody came up with the idea that, you know, the, the, there's actually a hybrid in the middle that might even be bigger than, than the other two, which is I want to do some things I want to I want to do some things myself, but I want to delegate others. And again, and I think that was that was a part of the um, you know the evolution of technology and adoption of of that through you know just people getting comfortable paying their bills online or looking up their account online. It was things things have really changed fast. But I think you you know as you you said you kind of went from this broker only model to now you got this advisor model to now you kind of have a whole crazy thing going on. And I, again, I think. I think why RIAs have done so well is because they kind of sit in this, you know, perch of independence where they can they can do things on their clients' behalf and not be constrained by larger corporate structures or um, you know proprietary focus. Uh, uh, and you know, if you know, again, if you're a, a large firm with companies or offices all over the country, you kind of need to have a similar client experience. And in order to do that, you have to limit the amount of choices and the amount of the amount of referral recommendations that somebody can do. Uh, and so, you know, to me, again, the advisor, which just by their their independent uh, nature, uh, was in a position to just really grow quicker than any of these other structures, Schwab and the, the people like Schwab and Fidelity, although they've done great bringing in the retail business, um, you know, it's hard for them to, to really have spend a lot of time with clients because they have too many. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in branches of those firms where I'm, I'm just shocked in today's world, but you'll walk in and there's a line like, like, Retail clients are like waiting in a line of like a dozen people to do something with the person behind the counter. And, you know, clearly the, a lot of times that experience can't be quite what 
what some people want to have. And I think if you want to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with your advisor and spend more time with them and more strategy and more planning, it's just hard to do at some of those kind of firms. Whereas if you're with an RIA, um, I think RIAs are built to have a different type of relationship with their client. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened to the independent advisor over the years and their evolution. Um, there's now other opportunities for them not to be so independent, to go to consolidators. So that's been a whole different thing and wave over the past. Well, it's not the past. It's been it's been a while. Yeah. Well, again, you know, it's and it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, when once once something starts happening and forming, um, you know, there's there's whole ecosystems built built around those those things. I mean, if you think about when when we started with Schwab Institutional, that you know, there was really nobody focused on RIAs. Um, you know, some mutual fund families started thinking that was a good idea. I mean, you you were instrumental in you know organizing and evolving the impact conference we had, and I think the first one was in San Francisco. It was a couple hundred advisors, and I'm not even sure we had any sponsors. Did we? Um, I don't think we did. It was at the Palace Hotel. Yes. And the, the keynote speaker was Peter Lynch from Fidelity. Yes. That's good. That's yeah. that's a good poll. Yeah. It's but but just think about it now. That conference has to be held at a convention center and it has five thousand people. Hundreds of uh vendors who yeah. are or who don't want to be called vendors, um strategic partners who are working with advisors, technology firms, compliance firms, product firms, like, I mean, there's a whole, whole world around it. So, so, you know, I think if you're an advisor now, there's just all these things happening. And at the same time, you've, you've had these decades of growth where you're continuing to grow because I think you have the preferred client to advisor relationship model, um, but over time, you kind of have to say to yourself, okay, who, you know, who do we want to be? Do we want to start, you know, do we want to add new services? Do we want to throw in tax planning? Oh, should we merge with somebody else or what should we do? You know, there's just a lot of, you know, different choices out there. So I think probably one of the biggest things with advisors these days is, you know, if you're, if you're going out and if you're growing you have to at some point decide okay you know how do we want this business to look do i want to be a manager do we want to have hundreds of employees and thousands of clients do we want to have less clients with deeper relationships do we want to have offices all over the country do we want to just have one office so i think because of that you have a lot of different choices out there as advisors to say, you're not going to, who do I want to be? And then who are those, those people that can do it? Um, and there is, you know, a lot of challenges out there, but I think one of the challenges as an advisor today is you kind of need to, you know, kind of get your act together on strategy and just say, okay, so what, what do, you know, where am I driving this thing and what do I want to do? Because let's assume we're we're doing a, the, all the right things and we're growing. That's only part of it. Now, as an advisor, you have to sort of look out into the future and say, okay, over time, what do I want to do? Another cool part about our business is we can, um, you know, you're talking to clients who have 
second generations and third generations, and they're interested in how you're going to help them in the future. And so you need to start to think about, okay, well, so how does this all work after me? Um, and what's the right way to do it? Is it to have an internal sort of transition plan? Is it to have an external one? And there's just a lot of choices out there. I remember early on when we formed Filigree and we were meeting with a younger couple and they looked at us and said, so what happens when you guys are gone? And we weren't that old at that time. And it just killed me. Yeah, I get that question a lot more these days than I did back then. <laughs> so advisors have a choice as they're growing to attach themselves to one of these bigger accumulators. And that's been a big wave coming. And there's probably 40, 50 of those and 20 that are thriving and maybe 30 that have run out of money or whatnot. So there's an attraction to joining those. There's benefits to that. And then there's another trend coming of people who have been there and are leaving to become independent again. And, and that's the that's the whole, if you sell out a little bit, you are no longer the boss. And I think I want to be the boss. So there's, there's a lot in that question. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, with the consolidated, there, there is, and there is a surprisingly massive trend of consolidation in the industry, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised when I see some of the firms that are, that are sort of selling out and getting rolled up based on just our experience of who we know these people are, and we've known them for years and years. But I think, you know, to me, at the end of the day, you know, right now, there's a lot of money, there's a lot more buyers than sellers. Um, there's private equity going out, there's multiples being paid for these firms that they could have never imagined. And so probably the biggest driver right now is cash capital. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of advisors that are, you know, getting long in the tooth that are saying, you know, I'm just going to take that deal. And uh, I guess, I guess it's more than I ever thought my company would be worth. And I'm, I'm going to transition that. I think there's a lot of that. There's, there's certainly the argument that with larger firms, there's more scale, there's um, career pathing for employees, there's better branding for clients. There's, you know, there's all those kinds of things that, you know, you, you hear, but I also know from experience, if you're at a firm that's buying up people at a pretty rapid pace, there is years of, um, integration that needs to take place. There's there's years of consolidating uh, clients, investment strategies, statements, portfolio management systems, CRMs. It's like it's this never ending thing. So you know, sort of to fast forward, I think to a part of the end of your question, I, I think there's a lot of people when you do these consolidations that are probably pretty happy because they came out on the uh, sort of side where they, there was, you know, good, a good reward for that. And I think there's a lot of other sort of more junior advisors, I'll call them that might be looking at this going, okay, now I'm, I'm sitting here at a much bigger firm, maybe even from my private to a publicly traded firm. And I'm now involved in all these things that have nothing to do with my client. We're just trying to integrate all this stuff. And then, so I 
I feel like, you know, just like we were talking about the breakaway broker trend when you had all these brokers from, you know, Maryland, whoever saying, I'm going to go out and go out on my own and start my own company. I almost feel like there's a, a breakaway advisor um, thing that's going to start happening where, you know, it might be cool to be smaller and independent again, because you can get into these bigger firms and, and they're going to be doing a lot of great things, but I think it's going to take time to evolve and do all that. And then again, just like sort of to me is very kind of a deja vu. You've got these other people that are probably going, you know, I kind of liked it when I had, you know, the ability to do the portfolios that we wanted to do, not that we have to do now that we've joined this big thing. And I think there's this statement customization and this, this preferred service we do for these certain types of clients that, you know, it's, it's just going to be easy for me to do it, uh, in a, in a smaller, more independent practice. And so I think you're going to potentially see this kind of pendulum going back a little bit, which, um, you know, I might be wrong on that, but, uh, you might know more about that than I do based on where you sit, but. So what about the investor? I'm on this big thing that the industry has forgotten about the investor, that it's all about making money in my next round. And you don't, nobody talks about the investor like, I think they should. Where do you, where do you come in on that? It, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think I, I think it's you know you've uh, you've passed the uh, Schwab alumni test of uh, thinking about the advisor because we were all you know fully trained on to think like that, and I think it's important that people do that. And I think again, those who who focus on the the end investor. Uh, all are the ones that are going to win. Um, the The focus should always be on the end investor. And when you, we were talking about this consolidation, I think I think there's a little bit of taking the eye off the ball on that one because clearly these firms have to do a lot of internal focus again. Again, kind of deja vu from the history. But and and those other firms are going to be able to to focus on the investor. The investor wants and expects great advice. Uh, they, they also demand, you know, I think safety and uh, security. And what's kind of interesting we've seen recently, uh, you know, with FTX and BlockFi, you know, some, some kind of bad experiences there. Um, and I, and I think, you know, to me, it only underlines this, this importance of as advisors, you know, you really have to focus on the client, you have to focus on their needs, what they want. And I think going forward, there's a lot going on. I mean, you've got, for the first time since we started, there's inflation, there's interest rates that are higher. Um, there's a there's a war going on. I mean, there's there's some stuff going on now that just hasn't been seen for a long time. And I think clients are gonna want better advice. They're going to want better advisors. Um, and so I think if you're a firm focused on, on the clients, you're going to be, you know, really trying to figure out, okay, how do I want to, you know, how, how do I want to work with these clients that, you know, might've had a bad experience with, you know, some of these digital things, they, um, they're also very open to innovative new technologies. Uh, we've just through the pandemic, um, Zoom 
being able to be collaborative with clients digitally is now a thing. Um, working with clients on a financial plan, doing it in a system uh, collaboratively and together real time is, is all very possible. Those are all really cool things. And I think, um, so I think, you know, for investors, I think there's a lot of great new things and opportunities out there and ways to have relationships with clients that, and with advisors that they can have. But I think as an advisor, you have to actually have to figure that out and worry about it and build it. And uh, I'm not sure everybody's doing that. And I think the smaller advisors are going to have an easier time pivoting and doing that than the bigger ones. Well, um, as you as I, you and I know, um, as we made that journey from 120 Kearney over to 101 Montgomery, and we went through security, there's that sign on the wall that said, we are the custodians of our clients' dreams. And Schwab, a uh, quote from Mr. Schwab. Yeah. No, that was, um, I mean, that's a, that's a memorable sign for me. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's a great lesson, I think, for everybody to think about, which is, you know, when you, when you work with clients, it's, it's on trust. Um, and it's, it's, it's an important relationship that, that people have. And I think if you get too focused on, you know, the wrong things, you can kind of lose that. Um, and so, you know, um, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, in a recent uh, Thanksgiving holiday card we sent out to clients, they actually mentioned that sign um, as as a sort of a reminder for our firm as to, you know, what, what it's all about and that, you know, we are the, in fact, we're not the custodian of our clients' dreams. We're the, that's Schwab, we're the advisor on our custodian's financial dreams. And but you know we we have the ability to uh, help that those dreams come true, and we also you know have a responsibility to try to avoid as many pitfalls as possible on their behalf. Try to see around the corner for them whenever possible, and and again, I, I think as as advisors, that's what you have to do. And I think that's a good place for us to stop, um, Gerald. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's been real fun, and we got to have you back. Anytime. Learn more about Gerald and Filigree Advisors, please visit filigreeadvisors.com. Please follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. <laughs>